Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Marilyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Advances in the Treatment of Colorectal Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and um, we're really delighted to have all of you on the call today. And you come from all over um, the United States. Um, you come from both um, urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today on the call from Belgium, Canada, India, Oman, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. As well. And today's uh, program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Pfizer, Taiho Oncology, Inc., and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company. And I really want to thank them for their support of our program today. Uh, now, before we actually begin our program today, I want to actually um, ask you just a few questions. Um, so I'm going to actually um, ask you a few questions. Um, and I'm going to start with question number one. Um, and the first question, now this is on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating. Please select your rating. I understand new and emerging treatments for colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest rating with five the lowest rating. And the second question is, I understand the role of precision medicine and targeted treatments for colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the third question is, I know the importance of clinical trials for colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest rating with five the lowest rating. The fourth question is, I know how to manage colorectal cancer treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the fifth question, and this is the last question that I'll be asking you before we start this program, is I understand genomics and predicting response to treatment for colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for your participation in this in these questions it helps us to understand a bit more about what you understand coming into the program so thank you so much um, for this and now it's my great pleasure to move on and introduce our first speaker 
And our first speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. And Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center of Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson will be addressing an overview of colorectal cancer in the context of COVID-19, new and emerging treatment approaches, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Um, my first uh, uh, topic today is discussing uh, COVID and colorectal cancer. And we all know the de devastating effects of COVID on all aspects of our lives, uh, including the impact of COVID on our healthcare delivery systems. Our healthcare systems have had to make innumerable changes and adjustments over time to not only accommodate the large numbers of patients with COVID, but also to keep people safe, including when they are physically present at our health centers. The National Cancer Institute and many others have expressed concern that because of the pandemic, many individuals have uh, avoided or delayed recommended cancer screening, and that includes colon cancer screening, thus delaying diagnosis with the fear that patients will present later on with more advanced disease. And, and also people may uh, present down the line with cancers that might have been uh, prevented with uh, earlier screening. We also know there have been delays in surgeries, there have been delays in beginning treatment or interrupting treatment with potential uh, impact on outcomes. With the safety precautions that uh, our centers have uh, now extensively employed uh, um, throughout our, our healthcare environment, as well as more and more people being able to receive vaccines. We are uh, entering the phase of catch-up for screening uh, and interventions, and it's very important that people discuss with their clinicians how they can uh, resume uh, screening procedures, for example, as well as other aspects of their, uh, of their care. A number of our professional societies, and, and this has included participation for those, from those of us who are on this call today, work to create principles for management of colorectal cancer patients uh, during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And some of these principles have included, first of all, the importance of discussing the risk versus the benefit. And uh, oncologists have been urged to talk with their patients about what is the, uh, the risk of actually uh, proceeding with a screening procedure or, or a treatment uh, versus benefit for that individual. And, and this type of discussion needs to include, for example, the disease status, the age of the individual, how frail the individual is, as well as other medical complications or comorbidities 
that should enter into this discussion of uh, risk versus benefit. Um, in addition, um, uh, because of the mandates for social distancing, um, it was important to look carefully how could we uh, minimize blood tests, for example, or scans um, to uh, uh, not only uh, diminish the risk of viral exposure to the patient, but also the, the burden on the uh, medical staff. And some of this, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, resulted in the introduction of telephone and telemedicine visits, which could replace face-to-face -face visits. Um, also, encouraging uh, oral therapies that might be given at home uh, rather than in the office. So one example of that is to use the drug capecitabine rather than intravenous uh, 5-FU. And, and also to consider with, with for example, uh, single-agent capecitabine, the ability to uh, avoid some of the routine labs and keeping people uh, away from uh, the clinic. Um, also, um, for most people with stage 3 colon cancer after surgery, uh, urging uh, oncologists to administer three months of post-operative uh, combined chemotherapy with, for example, oxaliplatin and capecitabine rather than six months of treatment, um, which reflects uh, recent reports uh, from clinical trial data. Um, also, uh, when, when we think about rectal cancer patients, we now have very good evidence that a so-called short course of radiation, which is a, a five-day radiation treatment, then uh, a much more prolonged radiation treatment is efficacious and can be considered, particularly when we're trying to keep people away from our medical centers uh, to avoid uh, 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 excessive viral exposure. And also, there are other aspects here. So, for example, after successful surgery and when we need to follow people with colonoscopies, that there are people where we could uh, delay such. And there are a number of other uh, principles that have been developed that have been dis disseminated to oncologists uh, across the country, uh, which we hope will not only um, enable people to feel safe, but also to deliver appropriate uh, colon cancer care uh, to our patients. Um, the next uh, topic is on advances, and uh, Dr. Bakai Saab uh, will actually be discussing more of this in, in detail. But to quickly bring up some recent highlights, um, there have been recently reported clinical trial results that prompted the FDA to approve immunotherapy as an initial treatment for patients with metastatic colorectal cancer 
and who have tumors that are microsatellite high or the equivalent, which is deficient mismatch repair tumors, rather than receive chemotherapy. And although this is a relatively small subset of metastatic patients, it was uh, uh, an important advancement. Uh, also, um, there's continued emphasis on obtaining tumor molecular markers that I'm sure Dr. Bakai Sai will mention, um, but there have been recent uh, advances, for example, in those with BRAF mutated tumors and those tumors which express HER2 as important uh, subsets of people. Again, they're, they're relatively small numbers of patients, but um, uh, this is um, certainly considered an advance where we can better select people for treatment interventions. And there also may be some potential now for people who have uh, uh, the commonly noted uh, RAS-mutated tumors because there's ongoing work looking at least at subsets of people with RAS mutations where there actually may be drugs now that may be helpful. In rectal cancer, recent clinical trial results also support uh, giving patients with stage 2 and 3 disease treatment with chemotherapy and chemoradiation prior to surgery, that rather than what has been a standard of chemoradiation followed by surgery, and then with additional chemotherapy given after surgical recovery. In some cases, radiation may no longer be necessary, and we also await results from a recently completed clinical trial to clarify well, which patients may not uh, need radiation when they are treated with chemotherapy before surgery. In addition, there are some patients who receive a complete response after chemotherapy and chemoradiation for their rectal cancer who may be able to avoid surgery altogether. And uh, these are all factors that um, are continuing to be studied in clinical trials so that we can further improve our treatment strategies for rectal cancer patients. Um, there's also a tremendous interest um, because we know that the incidence of colorectal cancer is increasing in individuals younger than age 50 and this is a topic of intense uh, research um, so that we better understand why we are seeing um, our younger individuals develop colon and rectal cancer. And I, I want to conclude now with my last topic, which is the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine. Uh, the pandemic has lifted previous restrictions on the use of telemedicine which were such that few were actually eligible to have a telemedicine visit. Therefore, there has been, uh, with these, this lifting of restrictions, there has been a huge upswing in telemedicine visits. 
Um, this does require careful selection of which patients uh, uh, may actually really need a face-to-face -face visit, such as those individuals who are undergoing treatment. But there are still uh, many, many individuals where a face-to-face -face visit uh, can be replaced with a telemedicine visit. Um, the advantages of such not only uh, include avoiding travel, uh, transportation, and the expense of such, but also um, during the telemedicine visit, uh, patients and their families and friends can more readily participate uh, during the visit. There are some important disadvantages um, which reflect uh, health disparities that have also come front and center in the discussion of uh, adequate health care delivery, but this includes that many individuals don't have computers, they can't participate in video calls, and they may even have very limited telephone uh, time uh, on their phones, which add to the expense. And this type of uh, uh, list of disadvantages uh, will need to be discussed as we continue using this technology. Um, telemedicine also allows other health professionals such as uh, dietitians, counselors, genetic counselors to interact readily uh, with individuals. So our, our hope is that uh, Medicare and other insurance carriers will continue to encourage uh, telemedicine visits when feasible. Um, this is also an area of research, and we're going to have to make sure that we are carefully selecting people so that when a face-to-face -face visit is really important, that we continue such. And I, I think also many patients have expressed their desire to continue the face-to-face -face, uh, visits. Um, so with that, um, I'll conclude my uh, remarks. And uh, Dr. Mesner, I turn this back over to you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really excellent, really outstanding. You covered all the topics and then some, and I appreciate that very much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Tanyos Bakai Saab, and Dr. Uh, Bakai Saab is leader of gastrointestinal cancer program, Mayo Clinic Cancer Center, Professor Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science, consultant Mayo Clinic Arizona. And Dr. Bakai Saab will be addressing genomics, predicting response to treatment, the role of precision medicine and targeted cancer therapies, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments with your healthcare team, including technology and list of questions. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bakai Saab. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Messner, and uh, <clears throat> glad to be here again. Um, so the, the next discussion will be primarily focusing on uh, the role of precision medicine in, in colorectal cancer. Um, and, and finish off a little bit about discussing again some uh, some of the aspects that uh, telehealth telemedicine appointments. Um, 
So as we as we know, overall in cancer, uh, genomics um, and the, or the science of predicting response to treatment uh, has become uh, a mainstay, a main part uh, of how we manage our patients with uh, with cancer overall, but specifically expanding in colorectal cancer. Uh, and that's even more so important because we have hit a plateau with the chemotherapy, uh, with our chemotherapy options. Uh, we've done great. We've certainly improved outcomes quite significantly in colorectal cancer. Uh, but with the advent of uh, genomics, uh, we certainly continue looking forward uh, in uh, now and in the near future uh, to continue, you know, our road towards curing this cancer. Uh, so the, the the role of precision medicine in, in colon cancer is based now on the understanding that colon cancer is more than one disease. Uh, that it's, uh, as Dr. Benson alluded to briefly, uh, that there are subgroups of patients that benefit from different modalities, uh, in, uh, either in addition uh, of, uh, to, chemo, uh, to chemotherapy or in lieu of chemotherapy. Uh, and that certainly has become... Um, uh, uh, our standard today, uh, when we see a patient in the clinic, when we see our patients in the clinic, the first thing before any treatment starts, uh, we have to understand what is driving that cancer or maybe what is not driving that cancer. Either or, you know, is very useful to us to help us uh, essentially understand what biologic or immunotherapeutic options are available. Uh, for example, the, in the world of immune therapy, where uh, uh, you know colorectal cancer for uh, for a while uh, has been uh, in in the forefront, specifically a subgroup of patients with microsatellite instability high or MSI high uh, cancers, and we've known those are uh, uh, hyperinflamed cancers. They have a lot of mutations. They're very visible. Uh, to the immune system if we actually allow them to become visible to the immune system. And we've known uh, for many years now that uh, if we add uh, agents that uh, uh, target uh, essentially uh, uh, PD-1, uh, which is uh, one of the reasons why uh, these cancers, although very inflammatory, are uh, not as visible to the immune system, uh, that when we essentially block PD-1, we unlock essentially the power of these immune cells, and they essentially uh, wreak havoc on the cancer, which is pretty much what we want. And these agents have been looked at in smaller studies in later stage of colon cancer and have become a mainstay of treatment patients with some responses that are uh, 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 superb. And in fact, uh, in even the most advanced stages, we've brought patients into remission and, and, and frankly, even with the most advanced stages into cure. Uh, a recent study suggested that if we move pembrolizumab, uh, an inhibitor of PD-1, an immune therapy agent, uh, we actually uh, see improvement in outcomes compared to chemotherapy. And most specifically, uh, the delaying progression of cancer, uh, we're still awaiting the final uh, survival results, but overall it appears to perform better than chemotherapy, maintains quality of life, and for uh, uh, close to half of the patients, uh, their, uh, their cancer goes into re permanent remission uh, beyond four years, uh, although uh, data is not available beyond that time, but it appears that these will continue beyond that time. There are also other subgroups of, uh, of uh, colon cancer that appear to be 
targetable uh, both in the clinic and then others that we're exploring on clinical trials. One of those uh, targets is uh, a, 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 a gene called BRAF and BRAF B600E, which is a very aggressive uh, uh, mutation leading cancer uh, into a very aggressive path, um, needing very aggressive chemotherapy. So a combination of two agents, encorafenib, uh, a drug called encorafenib, and a drug that we commonly use in clinic called cetuximab, uh, or an EGFR inhibitor, were combined together in a large study and essentially have shown uh, uh, a response for, uh, for a large proportion of patients, and for, again, for many of these patients, uh, taking a very aggressive biology, uh, a very aggressive cancer, uh, into essentially a less aggressive and more biologically tamed cancer. Uh, further development uh, of these agents, so ancorafenib and cetuximab, now is being taken to the first line uh, in a large study called Breakwater, ensuring that the advantages that have been seen in later lines are being brought uh, to, to, to initial lines of therapy. Another emerging target is uh, a target uh, uh, specifically looking at the HER2 gene and HER2 amplifications. Now, interestingly, this is a target that we've known for the longest time about in breast cancer, uh, has made significant, a significant difference in breast cancer patients added to chemotherapy, both in the earlier and the later stages of the cancer. Um, we also have known that this, this is a target of interest in gastric cancer, and over the last few years, we've been exploring its role in colon cancer, and we've had a number of uh, very promising initial studies, now moving to, uh, to even further uh, randomized studies, uh, but the, a lot of the agents are already available, uh, at least in the U.S., uh, to, many, uh, to many patients uh, if the amplification is found. The amplification is typically in about 3 to 4%. In breast cancer, just as an example, it's a little bit north of 10%. In gastric cancer, about the same. So it's less common in, uh, overall in colon cancer, but if found, it means two things. One, it predicts for, for a lack of response for agents that target the EGFR pathway, cetuximab and penetimumab. At the same time, it creates a path for uh, a chemotherapy-free uh, targeted approach with dual agents such as tr trastuzumab, commercially known as Herceptin, um, and, uh, <clears throat> and pertuzumab, or preferably trastuzumab and lapatinib, or most preferably uh, a number of clinical trials that are underway in, in, in not just the U.S., but parts of the world as well, looking at various combinations uh, one of the, the the most advanced in development is, is trastuzumab, an, an agent called tucatinib, an oral agent that was just approved in addition to Herceptin in breast cancer and now being explored in, in, in colon cancer, showing very early promising results. So very excited about, about the developments in that space, and the responses for many patients tend to be significant and, again, very durable. And then uh, an, an agent called uh, trastuzumab deroxtecan, which essentially belongs to a family of agents called antibody drug conjugates, a little bit uh, different uh, in, in terms of the design, although these agents have been, or that design has been available for a while and to the clinic, uh, but these agents essentially use the HER2 receptor as a docking station 
and and there's a linker, and then uh, the roxetecan is the chemotherapy agent that gets released directly into the cancer cell uh, and ends up with a very high response rate, even in patients who have failed prior uh, Herceptin uh, plus drug X of choice. Uh, and so that offers yet another layer of protection for our patients with HER2 amplified tumors uh, where we go from one to the other. And again, this is being explored now in larger studies and I encourage all patients to consider the studies uh, but it's also available commercially on a limited basis. Uh, so these these are some of the targets. There are others. KRAS, we've known uh, about KRAS for the longest time. KRAS mostly predicts for the lack of effectiveness of an agent called cetuximab and penetumumab, and we've had a tough time being able to target that uh, that 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 gene, that the protein that comes out of that gene uh, uh, receptor. So mostly because of its conformation, it's the way it's it's built. Um, one of uh, the uh, uh, special conformation of KRAS is in, in, in G12C, um, and, and that uh, uh, conformation actually makes it susceptible to a couple of agents, at least actually more than two agents that are being developed uh, in, in clinical trials that specifically attack uh, this gene, and, and this is present in about 2% of patients with colon cancer, Added to cetuximab, we're starting to see some really meaningful responses, and this is again being developed further. Uh, more KRAS-specific uh, 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 mutations with targeted agents directed at them are being developed to the clinic as well. So very exciting time for one uh, of the genes that we thought uh, are undruggable, uh, meaning almost impossible to attack, and now we have agents coming one after the other to get that number of other Alterations are also found from NTRAC fusions to others that are being explored as well. So a very exciting time breaking down cancer into all the, these subgroups that we can go after one by one. So finally, I want to finish, finish off this discussion again on the, on the whole subject of uh, telehealth, uh, telemedicine uh, appointments, and, and understanding you know what that entails. Uh, Dr. Benson touched upon this. I mean, this is certainly an, an option for many of our patients and in those COVID times has actually facilitated a face-to-face -face, uh, without being physically in the clinic. Uh, although it doesn't replace for uh, uh, most patients, it doesn't re replace uh, the face-to-face, -face. Uh, it actually is an important uh, aspect for us uh, for, and for a while to be able to not only interact with the patient but interact with their families as well. It also allows us to interact with a lot of patients beyond our borders as well that need uh, essentially uh, consultations uh, or need uh, to have their care discussed with uh, with our physicians. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of things about telemedicine uh, are useful. It's important to ensure, and Dr. Benson uh, mentioned that, I mean, it creates some level of disparities between uh, uh, especially for those uh, uh, populations that may not have as much access to broadband. Uh, it's important to have a really good connection. Uh, this is a video connection to, to ensure that the discussion uh, is facilitated like such. Uh, it, it, it tends to put a lot of pressure on both the patients and the providers sometimes. And I think it's important ahead of time to prepare a good list of uh, questions and, and to go uh, uh, through them. 
uh, also understand the, the clinical trial landscape and have discussions about clinical trials, um, and, and certainly address the questions whether further follow-up, physical uh, visit follow-up is needed or not. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be more discussions about that, but that's, uh, I will uh, finish with this thought and turn it back to you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bakaisov. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation, really outlining uh, such an important areas um, for everybody, um, really going into great detail. Um, and um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Leonard Saltz, and Dr. Saltz is medical oncologist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine while at Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Saltz will be addressing the important role of clinical trials, including clinical trial updates, managing side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. Um, it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Saltz. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk with everyone today. I'm going to take these topics a little bit out of order um, and start with uh, the key questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns and other concerns because I think that that's a very good overview one to start with. The most important thing to understand is the question that matters is the one that matters to you. If you are concerned about it, if you are worrying about it, if you are curious about it, it's an appropriate question. There's no such thing as an inappropriate question. There's no such thing as, well, maybe I asked it last week, maybe I don't remember. If it's on your mind, you need to ask because one of the things that all of us who are taking care of patients understand is this is complicated and it's scary and it's unfamiliar. And so there's no expectation that you're going to remember everything the first time around. And the thing that you simply must remember is when in doubt, please ask. And also, please don't keep holding back until it's later than it should be. Um, if somebody calls my office and says, I'm concerned because I'm having this problem, fever, diarrhea, nausea, whatever it is, um, now that's better than if they call next week and say, I've had diarrhea for a week or I've been having fevers for a week. That's a much more serious and potentially more dangerous situation. So talking about your problems, your concerns with your healthcare provider early and often can help get small problems identified and dealt with while they're small rather than letting them grow. So please keep that in mind. And that really segues into the idea of managing side effects because Undoubtedly, when you start a treatment, your healthcare team is going to go over with you what kind of side effects to expect and what to do about it. And if you are really, really on top of your game and you're really sharp and paying attention and you're really calm, you may remember half of it if we're lucky. And so that's just, again, the nature of the, the challenge that you're going through as a patient and why it's so important to do your best to understand and remember each time, but ask questions when you're not sure and when you have side effects, deal with them uh, by, by working with your healthcare team to get guidance on what can I do, what should I do, where 
where where is a situation where we can just provide some reassurance that that's nothing to be concerned about versus gee that's something that uh, we really want to jump on so let's do something or bring you in for further evaluation or so on those uh, until and unless you let your healthcare team know that there's a problem uh, you have to assume that they don't know and that's not in your best interest so with that let me move on to a really important topic which is clinical trials. And I want to talk about what they are and what they're not, okay? Clinical trials are uh, a way that we work to move the quality of care forward while at the same time providing opportunities to patients for the best possible care. And so there's something that you should always be thinking about and always be asking in terms of are there clinical trials that I should be considering. Different doctors and and healthcare providers have different approaches. My personal style is whenever I meet with a patient and we're coming up with a treatment plan, I first try to describe for them what I think are the best options from a standard care point of view. And then once we've got that clear in our minds, say, now Let's see if there are any clinical trials that would be appropriate for you to consider as well, and then we can have a conversation back and forth about the pros and cons of being part of the clinical trial. Um, A clinical trial, yes, it is an experiment, and so some people view that as, well, that means someone is experimenting on me, that I'm a a guinea pig or or something of that nature. Um, uh, If that's the way you feel after a discussion, then you probably won't be comfortable being part of a clinical trial, and that's okay. You should only be part of a clinical trial if you're satisfied that it's a good idea for you. And that raises two issues. One is the issue of informed consent, and the other issue is the issue of your rights. You always have the right not to be part of a clinical trial, and you always have the right to withdraw from a clinical trial at any time for any reason if you change your mind about being part of it. Um, In order to go on a clinical trial, you have to both consent verbally and you have to give your written permission, your written consent to be part of a study. One of the things that means is you can never be part of a clinical trial without knowing it. And that's really important to understand. One of the other fears that people often have about clinical trials that is often misunderstood is the idea of, well, what if I wind up getting a placebo? What if they don't really give me the real medicine or the medicine they say they're going to do? Well, it is true that in some cases there are placebo-controlled trials where a portion of the patients will only get a placebo or a sugar pill or basically no drug. Those are uncommon, and when they happen, patients will have that fully explained both in writing and verbally, and they will have to give their permission. So um, most trials do not involve a placebo, and if the trial doesn't have a placebo, there's no risk that you are getting anything other than exactly what your doctors tell you you're getting. Now, sometimes a clinical trial may be what's called a randomized study. In that case, if you agree to go on the study, a computer will randomly assign you to one of the treatment arms. One of those arms might be standard care. One of those arms might be an experimental drug. One of those arms might be the standard care plus the experimental drug. Some of these studies are blinded, which means that neither you nor your doctor know which arm you're on. 
And some of these studies are open because it's obvious and clear which one you're on. Again, this needs to be in every situation carefully explained to you so that you can make a decision as to whether or not it's the right thing for you. Now, of course, it's true that participating in a clinical trial is helpful to other patients in the future because it helps answer a question. That's a good thing, but it's not a strong enough reason for you to enter into a clinical trial. You owe it to yourself and to the people who care about you to make the best possible decision that you can make in order to give yourself the best chance to get better and to control your cancer. So if after hearing the discussion, you feel comfortable that participating in the clinical trial is a smart move for you, then please do so. And if after hearing it, you decide this isn't in your best interest or this isn't what makes you comfortable, then you need to feel comfortable declining and saying, thank you, I'd rather have whatever is our best standard alternative. Now, one of the issues to be aware of about clinical trials is just because we want to put you on a clinical trial doesn't mean we can, or just because you wish to be on part of one doesn't mean that we can. And that comes down to a couple of issues. One is eligibility. It's often misunderstood that people think that a clinical trial is something to try when you're desperately ill if nothing else has worked. But in reality, almost all clinical trials require patients to be in pretty good physical shape uh, in order to participate. We call this the performance status, and having a good performance status means that you're physically active and doing the normal activities that you would normally be doing. People that are not getting off the chair or out of bed, people that are not able to get out of the house and take a long walk, people that are not eating well, often won't be able to participate in a clinical trial because they won't be eligible on the basis of that weakened performance status. Some trials will require specific levels of, of either uh, blood counts or liver function or kidney that we have to uh, meet. Others will only be open depending on the biology of your tumor, and this is what Dr. Bakai uh, Saab was talking about in terms of the issue that you will uh, uh, have to have the right mutation or type of tumor in order to be eligible for a clinical trial. And so that information is something that your doctor will work with you. So in summary, clinical trials are a good idea if after hearing about them, if after it's been offered to you, it seems like a good idea. And sometimes a clinical trial may not be the right answer for you or may not be available. It's simply one of the many aspects to be thinking about and talking to your uh, healthcare team about as you go forward with your cancer care. Thanks very much for your attention, and uh, I'll be happy to take questions at the end of the program. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Saltz. That was really an excellent presentation on on really clinical trials and um, on you know on none of the topics that you addressed. It's just really important for people to understand. Um, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you about about this uh, as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Burden, and Ms. Burden is an oncology dietitian um, at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and she'll be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, to start with, you know, nutrition and hydration are absolutely essential. 
um, not only just for your body's function, but um, it also plays a role in your tolerance to treatment and providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Quality of life is very important, and that's something that is um, important to your healthcare team. And so um, nutrition is one way to help you accomplish um, a better, better quality of life. Now, during your treatment, just depending on your unique treatment needs, um, your diet might be modified. And um, this could be temporary. It can just be through a transition. But utilizing your resources um, with your healthcare team is very important in order to help you um, be as comfortable as possible and maintain your nutrition um, by modifying as needed. So some of the potential side effects you could experience, these are just some, everyone's unique, and so their journey is a little bit um, specific, more specific to what, what they're being treated and how they're being treated. Um, but constipation, diarrhea, sometimes mouth sores, nausea and vomiting, maybe changes in taste, possibly a decrease in appetite, and maybe an increase in fatigue. So the dietitian's role is to help support you with diet changes through your treatment. And um, so you may meet with her or him at different times, um, and it may just change. Your diet recommendations might change. But they can not only just provide you information on modifications, but also give you specific information on calorie, protein, and fluid needs. Um, depending on your treatment, some of these can be um, elevated at times, and other times they may not be so much. So something I always like to remind patients is even if you are overweight, you can still become malnourished. This is, um, I hear this a lot from patients, like, oh, I have weight to lose. Um, I'm not that worried about it. But when you're going through cancer treatment, um, there's a lot of other processes that are occurring, and it's very important that, um, that you consult with your team, especially if you're going through radiation. Um, you know, weight management is very important um, for a lot of different reasons. And then, of course, not just that, but after surgery or even with radiation, sometimes there's increased needs um, for protein um, in order to help with that recovery and rebuilding of the tissue. So if you are struggling nutritionally, and um, really it's affecting your overall, um, your overall quality of life and maybe your endurance and your fatigue of change. Sometimes it can also delay your treatment. So it's really important that you reach out to your team early and utilize those recommendations they give you so that you can be successful throughout your treatment plan. So there are some medications that can help with side effects um, along the way. Please talk with your doctor and your healthcare team early. If you start having symptoms, talk to them as they arise. If you have trouble remembering and keeping track of things, which can happen when you're going through treatment, not just from the treatment itself, but just the stress and maybe not sleeping well, um, maybe not just filling yourself, write down what you're going through. Keep a little notebook with you. If you have someone who's there for you, who's a, a you know, um, a friend or a family member who can help um, walk through with you this, during this journey, keep these notes intact, that's really helpful. But if there are certain foods that you have reactions to, note that down. It all has um, an impact on 
um, how we can help support you. So the more information you give us, the more that we can help you. Um, weight records are something that we keep track of as well because weight trends are very important. So talking about halting your weight loss or maintaining your weight may be part of those conversations as well. Um, but specifically, if you have a diversion like an ileostomy, a colostomy, um, something where you've had an anatomy change, um, sometimes modifying your diet can really help with um, getting that output the way you need it to be and what we want it to be to keep yourself hydrated and nourished. Um, dehydration is actually something that's very important throughout all aspects of your cancer care. And um, dehydration can in increase your um, feeling of nausea, fatigue. It can make you feel dizzy, put you at higher risk of falling. Um, but fluid is anything that is liquid at room temperature. So it includes water, milk, sports drinks. But a general guideline is most people need between 80, excuse me, 80 and 120 ounces of fluid a day. Um, and it sounds like a lot, but we're made up of a lot of water, and so we have to keep that hydration going. But treatments such as radiation um, can even require more fluid um, because it can be very drying. So, again, being in touch with your healthcare team about that is so important. But in closing, there are several members of your healthcare team dedicated um, to you and walking through um, this journey with you. So please be in touch with them and connect with them. Um, like we've heard already this presentation, no questions is stupid question. And we want to make sure you feel comfortable and secure in the care that you're getting. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Diana. That was really excellent, and um, thank you so much. And um, I just um, – and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. There always are. Thank you. Um, and um, I, I'm Carolyn Master. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services um, for all of you. Um, so uh, I'm a Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care, and I'm going to discuss what a Cancer Care's free programs and services are. Now, Cancer Care is a, an organization that was founded in 1944, and we provide a host of services. And let me just go over them with you so you'll be able to access those services um, as you need them. All of the services are free, and they're national. And um, we um, all of our services are now offered both um, on the telephone and online. And so we have an 800 number, 1-800-813-4673, and you'll be getting all of this information um, when you get the evaluation at the end of the program. We survey Monkey, and it'll be, it's an evaluation, and we always love your feedback, but we also will provide um, all resources that we mentioned during the call. Mm -hmm. So um, our services are provided by oncology social workers. We have... 30 oncology social workers on staff, master's trained social workers, um, and we provide support, online support groups, case management, um, so it's an opportunity to provide you with resources to help you that you might need and connect you with those resources and stay with you until you get the resources you need if we don't provide them ourselves. We offer practical financial and co-payment assistance, so a lot of financial assistance that we provide. And, and just really practical, again, that case management practical help. Um, we offer these education workshops and have publications as well. So that's a bit of a thumbnail sketch of all of our services. And um, before we um, take questions, um, we're going to um, ask you just a few more questions um, just to conclude the program to see um, 
uh, sort of what your what you've uh, what your answers to those questions are now. At now the program is we've heard the speakers and everything. So the uh, next question um, uh, is. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have, get great, I have greater knowledge of new and emerging treatments for colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest and five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned, in this workshop, I feel more confident in accepting the role of precision medicine and targeted treatments for colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I am more likely to participate in clinical trials for the treatment of colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. The next question, there'll be one more after this one. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in working with my healthcare team to manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of colorectal cancer treatment. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. And the last question is, as a result, of this workshop, I have greater confidence in genomics and predicting response to treatment for colorectal cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five is the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in this. It gives us a good sense at the start of what you know coming into the call and what you know coming out of the call. So that's really very helpful to us as we plan all of our future programs, and we're planning a, a lot of future programs. So just um, stay tuned. But we, your feedback really helps us to get a sense of what's working for you and what isn't. So thank you. And now we're going to bring all of our speakers on board to take your questions. So I'm going to ask um, Michelle, to bring all of our speakers on board and to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then the one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, if you have a question at this time, please press star then one. And we have some online questions. I'm just going to um, start with. Um, uh, I'm going to start with one. Um, so this is a question for Doctor. I'll start with Doctor Benson. I recently found out my colon cancer relapsed. Am I going to be treated the same way as my initial diagnosis, or do doctors move on to a new treatment course for relapsed disease? If you could answer this, Doctor Benson, in a general way. So um, there are people who have had initial surgery for their colon cancer and uh, receive combination chemotherapy. 
And there are times, particularly if there's some distance between that therapy and when a person relapses, where uh, a similar regimen uh, may be used. Um, we also use that opportunity to make sure, as uh, Dr. Uh, 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 Bakai Saab mentioned, we we look for biological parameters that might enhance our selection of treatments at that time. There are many options for people with relapsed uh, colorectal cancer, and it does take a very careful discussion with the clinician as to the choice of treatment. But it is possible that people would have a similar therapy they originally uh, had. Thank you. And Dr. Bakaisab, do you want to comment as well? Uh yeah, I mean, you know, the 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 this is really an expanding uh, uh we're seeing an expanding field of option and choices for uh for our patients, uh you know, as mentioned both on on uh in in actual clinical practice but also uh you know, a slew of clinical trials covering every every aspect of of colon cancer. So, um I think uh, I think that's the, if if any message gets taken from that is that you know the options will continue to expo- exponentially grow and ultimately we're going to be treating you know colon cancer as uh, as not just as one cancer but as uh, you know tens of different cancers based on the target. Thank you. And Dr. Saul, a question for you. I know you addressed this, but it looks like this question is here. So are there clinical trials available at the current time, or are they on hold because of the pandemic, if you could address this important question? Actually, I didn't mention on that point, that subtle point, and that's an important one. Um, yes, this time last year, when the pandemic first crashed upon the world, many clinical trials, a large majority, either slowed down or were suspended. Uh, By summer, um, I think that most of uh, the centers involved in research had uh, sort of caught their breath, figured out how to protect patients appropriately and reopen to clinical trials. So that now, uh, both at my center, I'm sure at the centers of the other speakers and and, uh, uh, innumerable centers uh, throughout the globe, uh, clinical trials are up and running pretty much full speed. And so uh, it is important to be looking for them. Uh, That said, um, it's really important to understand that clinical trials can't be something that separate you from your home and your support systems. And so ideally, you should be looking for clinical trials in the area where you live so that you can participate without disrupting um, your your, your contact with your family, friends, and, and other support. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so, thanks so much. Um, okay, that's really important then. Um, thank you. And um, a question for Ms. Bearden. Um, uh, could you please, um, well, are the nutritional recommendations for patients who have completed colorectal cancer treatments different and during treatment? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, a lot of it's very individualized based on what your treatment is. So there, there might be some modification to fiber, um, that's usually the one thing that we find gives folks the most um, um, relief is if during radiation 
treatment, for example, um, reducing some of the insoluble fibers, so the crunchy fiber, things like in celery, broccoli, um, cauliflower, and increasing more of the soluble fiber. There may even be like a metamucil or a psyllium type powder that the doctor prescribes for you um, that is a soluble fiber, and it can actually help with being less irritating. It can help with softly bulking the stool um, and reduce some of that diarrhea that can be caused by the radiation. Um, the same thing can be modified with you have an ileostomy. Um, depending on the placement of the ileostomy, if it's higher or lower um, in your digestive tract, you can have a little bit more um, focus on modifying that soluble fiber to help with bowel management and absorption of nutrients. Um, when someone's going um, through treatment, they have a lot of diarrhea. Not only are they losing the fluid and the electrolytes, but sometimes they're um, are actually malabsorbing some of that, nu that nutrition that they're trying to um, absorb. Um, it's just going through too quickly. So long-term, getting back to a baseline diet that you were before is what we aim to do. Um, some folks still have to modify a bit with the fiber. Um, but again, everyone's so individualized, and it can change during your treatment based on your chemotherapy or, you know, going through radiation and just how your body responds. So just stay in touch with your healthcare team. Um, there are ways to modify your diet. Um, it's not the only method. There's also, like I said, some pharmaceutical interventions that can happen. But, um, but yeah, just talk with your healthcare team because your needs are going to be different even probably than the person sitting next to you being treated for the same um, type of cancer. So just talk with them to be on top of what you need. Excellent. And we have a question from, because uh, we all asked question here, um, um, and this will be for Dr. Benson. Um, so the, the caller is indicating that sometimes they are um, concerned about coming in for either uh, tests, just basic cancer screening tests, or for treatment, um, a cancer treatment, just based on concerns about um, about COVID. And I wondered if you could address this concern, uh, Dr. Benson. Uh, yes, it, it's a very, very common concern that I think most of us on this call have had to address on a daily basis. So. Uh, what's very, very critical is communication with your healthcare team so that you discuss your current situation, whether you're someone under treatment or you're due for screening or you're due for surveillance, uh, to discuss um, how critical is it for you to be in the office at any one moment in time. Uh, for example, to undergo treatment, and this gets back to discussion to the discussion of risk versus benefit. Having said this, um, uh, as I mentioned, our healthcare centers have taken enormous precautions to keep people safe. Um, th this includes those who are coming in for routine visits as well as those under treatment. And you can review all those safety measures that we've undertaken to keep people safe. What we don't want to have happen is someone to avoid treatment that may affect 
their outcomes down the line. So we don't want to compromise appropriate cancer care at all, but we can make adjustments at times, and these adjustments need to be addressed with your healthcare team. Uh, they're important concerns, and the healthcare team should be able to uh, work through these issues with you so that you're not only safe, but you're getting the most effective care possible. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Bakai, so I have this one, one last late-breaking question, um, which is, I think, an issue that probably comes up a lot also. Um, is the COVID vaccine recommended for people currently undergoing treatment for colorectal cancer? Uh, the answer is uh, uh, yeah, absolute yes. Uh, we know that our patients with cancer at, are at increased risk for uh, severe illness and even uh, death from COVID-19. Uh, and frankly, even when looking at patients who may not be undergoing active therapy, who have a recent history of cancer, they appear to be at, at, at somewhat of an increased risk, but mostly those uh, on chemotherapy uh, uh, or immune therapy, and so, so the the answer is an absolute yes. Uh, the COVID vaccine, unless there are any other contraindications, uh, is 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 highly recommended uh, for our patients with uh, with cancer if, on treatment. And if I could, if uh, I could add to that, um, there it, it's really important for people to understand there are very 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 few contraindications to the covid vaccine and we strongly recommend it for all our patients um unless someone has a known rare allergy to the specific components of the vaccine there's nothing about cancer treatment that would be a problem with it um and it uh, it is uh, something that we consider to be safe and effective for all of our patients Excellent. Thank you. And yes, thank you. we do recommend, of course, that you all take this information, go back to your healthcare team, ask them, but you're hearing information here that we hope will be helpful to you in, in increasing your, your knowledge. That's what we're hoping will happen. Now, um, I am going to ask, um, before we conclude the program today, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to actually um, give you a takeaway of, from today's call. I'm going to start with Dr. Benson, and we'll go right down the order of the people speaking, uh, speakers speaking. So I'm going to start with Dr. Benson first in terms of anything you'd like people to particularly remember about today's presentation or your particular presentations. So uh, I would say what we talked about is immensely complicated and further complicated because of COVID. And so my message is, Make sure you establish excellent communication and maintain excellent communication with your healthcare team, whether it's by telemedicine or face-to-face. -face. Uh, when we're in such a difficult situation and we're dealing with complex therapies, communication is essential. Thank you. And Dr. Bakai Saab? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in addition to all what my colleagues are going to be talking about, but I mean, the primary message, at least from my discussion, is that, you know, colon cancer, colorectal cancer, is a very genetically diverse, uh, 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 different subgroups of cancers and with multiple targets uh, and multiple targeted agents as well as immunotherapeutic options for few that are uh, emerging and many, many that continue to be investigated. Excellent. Thank you. I'm in Dr. Saltz. 
Yeah, uh, again, I think we're all going to echo the, the same idea. Keep your mind open, look for options, keep your communication lines wide open with your healthcare providers, uh, and don't be shy. If there's something on your mind, make sure that the people taking care of you know about it. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Bearden? Um, yes, I'd like to echo everything that um, all the other speakers um, mentioned, of course. But And then just remember that you're unique, right? Everybody has other health conditions that are going on, um, and sometimes that influences your response to treatment. And um, although we, we as healthcare professionals have an understanding of many of the things that you would experience, um, it's important for you to be an advocate for yourself as well and, and bring those things to our attention if there's something that we didn't ask, if there's something that's changed or that's new, new, new to you, um, tell us because it's, it's very important that we understand how you're doing with this treatment and how we can best help you. Oh, thank you so much. And um, it's Carolyn, and I just want to say that actually um, I would just want to say that we're hoping that you've learned some things today and that um, we want you to take what you've learned. If you asked a question, we still want you to go back to your healthcare team and ask them that question. If you were listening and have a question that we didn't get answered because there are many questions yet in queue, go back to your healthcare team and ask the question. I think what Dalta Salt said, you know, definitely ask questions of your healthcare team. That's really important. Um, and um, we are um, we are hopeful that you have learned some information. But again, always go back to your healthcare team. We also know that many of you like to oh check information. That's why you're on the call today. You're information seekers, and we will be providing you with on the evaluation form of reputable sites to go to to get information. We want to be sure that if you're checking something, that you're checking it at, at a really well-known, established, um, you know, cancer site for your information, and that the information is current as of 2021, not from many years ago. We want you to know, have current information. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, also, you do have, of course, access um, to um, your own healthcare team, um, which is a very broad number of disciplines, and you also are, can contact Cancer Care, one of many nonprofit organizations that offers support, and we will give you lists of others as well so that um, we don't want any one of you to leave this call feeling that you don't have resources to go to um, to get help. I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to wish you all a very fine day, and, um, and you all take good care. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.